pray with me, please? Uh, Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We are so extremely thankful that you have chosen to inspire your word so that it is not lost in time. But that you have inspired the apostles and the prophets, you have inspired your people to write down what they heard you say and that you've guided them to say. I pray, my Father, that you would inspire us today to hear and to receive. Break down barriers so that your word is heard with clarity. Break down any barrier within my own heart and mind and soul so that I can speak it with clarity. Open ears, unclog ears, open hearts that we may all receive what it is our Lord has to say. We praise you, Father. We praise you forever, you, your Son, Jesus, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, please uh, open your Bibles. Uh, those of you that brought your Bibles or there are Bibles in front of you, otherwise use your inserts. Um, use your inserts that are in your bulletins. I want to teach you this morning uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. Remember that in your bulletins there is a sheet in the back, perhaps the last page, where you can take notes. Don't just take notes from what I say. Take notes from anything the Lord also may be saying to you as I speak. He may very well bring to your attention other passages. He may bring to your attention some experiences. He may bring to your attention a word that he wants you to consider. And then you go home later on, look at what you have written, and then pray about it. So uh, use, use your, your sheet there to take notes. So I'm looking at the Gospel of the Apostle John, chapter 14, beginning with the 21st verse. However, uh, to put things in context, I want to remind you that Jesus is in the upper room. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. In fact, this whole section takes about five chapters it begins with chapter 13, verse 1, and it reads, Now, before the feast of the Passover, that makes it possibly Thursday of Holy Week. Okay, Thursday of Holy Week, just before the feast of Passover, we would have started on Friday evening, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper. So this sets the context of the next few chapters as the upper room during Jesus' possible Passover meal with his disciples. 
what we have come to know as the Last Supper. This whole section ends all the way in chapter 18, verse 1, which says, when Jesus had spoken these words, what's in between chapter 13, verse 1, and 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. So at this point, they leave Jerusalem, they leave the upper room, they go across the, the valley that leads to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there they enter. Chapter 13, verse 1 to 18, 1, is what we are uh, considering today. So what we're looking at is that the Passover having ended, not, not the Passover, the Passover meal that Jesus was taking with his disciples. What we have come to know as the Last Supper. The Last Supper. And I want to remind you, it is evening. It is evening. Okay? But it's a very unusual evening. A very unusual evening. In fact, Passover was supposed to be unusual anyways. Passover was supposed to be unusual because it was to separate a time for them to remember something that happened many years ago. It was supposed to be a night like no other night. In fact, that is part of the Jewish uh, ritual of, of Passover. This is a night like no other night. This was to be a special and unusual evening when they were to remember all that God had done to deliver them from the Egyptian slavery. It was a very unusual evening anyways because of what they were doing. But besides that, it was a very, very unusual evening because Jesus made it unusual. Jesus made it extremely unusual. He went off of any Jewish liturgy for the day or for the night, he went off of it and started doing things which were not part of the Jewish ritual anyways. At some point after the meal or during the meal, Jesus begins to strip. That's not part of the liturgy. That's not part of the service. Jesus begins to strip, and he takes some of his clothes off, and he takes a towel, and he gets a, a, a basket or, or a, a something with water, okay, a tub of water of some sort. He gets on his knees in front of each and every one of his disciples, takes off their sandals, and begins to wash their feet. That makes it unusual. Just that by itself made it an evening so unusual that when he gets to Peter, Peter objects. You can't do that. You're the Lord. You're the master. You're the king. How can you do this for me? That's how unusual this evening was. But it gets worse in its unusualness. At some point during the meal... Jesus takes bread, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them and says, this is my body. 
that is not part of the Jewish service. This is my body. And gives it to them and says to them, eat it. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then he comes to one of the last cups, because there were several cups that were drunk during that evening. And he comes to a cup, I think it's the seventh cup, which is called the cup of, of redemption. And he lifts it up, he gives thanks to the Father, and then he gives it to them and says, this is my blood. Wow. Talk about unusual evening. Unusual evening. Jesus makes this a very special and unusual evening. Also, this is the evening when one of his friends betrays him, just turns against him for his own reasons, whatever those reasons were. He just betrays his friend. And then there's another friend that same evening that denies him. The leader of the twelve denies him. The one to whom he said, the, king, the keys of heaven are given to you. The keys of the kingdom are given to you. You are Petros, and upon this rock, this Petra, I give, you know, I, I establish my kingdom. And gives him the keys in a, in a symbolic way. And now he denies him. When pressure got to him, Peter says, I know not the man. I, 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 don't associate me with him. Uh, uh, uh. I'm, not, I'm not part of that. Unusual evening. But the other thing that makes it a very unusual evening is that Jesus begins to have some very peculiar teachings. Some very peculiar teachings this day. Now, I know I have said this to you before, but not all of you may have heard it, and some of you may have forgotten it. But I believe that chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to 18, 1, that evening, is what I have called or believed to be the last will and testament of Jesus. Not written, but spoken. The last will and testament. In other words, if I knew that I will be dead by tomorrow, I would want to gather my daughters, my grandchildren, all of you, my friends, the people I love, and I would want to give you my final instructions. Everything and anything that is of importance to me, I would want to pour it on you. I want to make sure you don't forget that after I'm gone, everything I want to teach you, the last things I want to teach you, the things I want you to remember, the things I consider important, I want to give them all to you. Wouldn't you do the same with your children? I think Jesus was doing this this evening. He knows that by next day he's dead. And so I consider Chapter 13, verse 1 through 18, his last will and testament. So he gives very unusual teachings to them. First of all, he announces with clarity that he's leaving. And then he teaches them about love. Speaks a lot about love, loving one another. Speaks to them about unity. 
unity. Their unity cannot be with the world. The world will persecute them. Their unity needed to be with each other. Their comfort, their strength, their support was going to have to come from fellow disciples. And so he speaks to them about unity being one as the Father and him are one. You need to be one with me and, and, and be one with each other. And he spends a lot of time talking to them about unity, unity, unity. He speaks to them about the world persecuting them, persecuting uh, the disciples. He prepares them for that. And, and he teaches them about prayer. And one of the things I love about chapter 17 is not only does Jesus pray for himself and says to the Father, glorify the Father, Father glorify me. He teaches them that while he was with them, he used to pray for them all the time. They now need to learn to pray for each other. And he gives them teaching on being able to go to the Father directly because he's going to the right hand of the Father. And so he teaches them on prayer. So he gives them some very unusual teachings, but he also gives them some very unusual and important commandments, not suggestions, commandments. Commandments that were to be observed and were to be repeated. Were to be repeated and to be repeated as often as possible. As often as you repeated these commandments, you will never forget what Jesus did for you and for me. Let me give you an example. Passover occurred in Egypt 40 years before they entered the promised land. Once, and you know what happened in Passover, the angel of the Lord went over the land of Egypt, and wherever he didn't find the blood on, on the sides of the doors, he killed the firstborn son of animal and, and, and humans and all of that, but he passed over the Jews because they had the blood of a lamb in the dentals and the sides of the door. But do you know that for 40 years in the wilderness... The people did not celebrate Passover again. They did not celebrate Passover. They did not circumcise their children for 40 years. That the moment they did not repeat, constantly repeat the Passover, they would tend to forget. By the time they get to about to enter the promised land in Jericho, Joshua has to recircumcise. A lot of those children that were born during the 40-year exile in the wilderness. Recircumcise them because the children would have forgotten everything that God did in Egypt for them. The plagues, the strength of his arm, the power, the authority, the might that God had spoken to them from a mountain. And for the first time they celebrated Passover again just about before they entered the promised land. Things need to be repeated because we tend to be forgetful creatures. But the more we repeat things, the more that we understand them, remember them, and pass them on. And Jesus gave commandments that he wanted us to repeat all the time. It is in this when I looked at chapter 13 all the way to, uh, to chapter 18, I find a number of commandments. 
Some of them are up in the screen. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink this, all of you, this is my blood. He intended for us to do Eucharist as often as possible so that we always remembered that it is by his sacrifice that we have entrance into the grace of God, into the family of God. The moment you and I take the Eucharist lightly, or it doesn't matter if we take communion or not, or we can take it once a year, we are diminishing its value in our minds, in our hearts, and the effectiveness of it as a sacramental moment in which God and us meet together. The moment we don't take Eucharist regularly and effectively and meaningfully, we're going to forget what it costs to save us. And so Jesus commands the disciples, and I believe Paul tells us that we ought to do this as often as we gather together. Now, he doesn't give us, he doesn't say every week, every other week. He doesn't give us, but he says as often as we come together. We ought to take communion and remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. The second thing Jesus commanded with a lot of clarity is that we ought to wash one another's feet. He taught us about servanthood. In fact, I read, Jesus said, He who is greater among you, let him be as the youngest. And he who governs as he who serves. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. That is not a suggestion. That was intended to be a commandment that we learn to be servants of one another. That we learn to strip down, that we learn to take water and basin and anything that would help our brother and sister. And we need to bow ourselves and take our crowns off. That idea that sometimes I can't serve you because I'm better than you. And we need to learn to humble ourselves and get on our knees and help one another as much as we can and in any way that we can. I'm not saying help your brother in what you can't. But I'm helping you. I'm saying help your brother in what you can. And most of us have enough resources to help our brothers and our sisters. And not only them. We need to be people of servanthood and known as people of servanthood in the world to all people. Servanthood was something Jesus commanded from his disciples. And it's something that we need to observe and we need to repeat ourselves. And then another thing he commanded is believe in me. Believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. He constantly said during that night, believe in me, believe in me. And then he also said, love one another. I mean, that was the key thing uh, for Jesus. Love one another. So much that John repeats it even in his letters. Love one another, love one another. If John was known 
uh, throughout ex uh, Ephesus, when he lived and wrote the, uh, the revelations and all of that, Jesus was, John was known by these words of Jesus. Love one another. Little children, love one another. Love one another. That is not optional. Love for one another is essential for the disciples. They will know you are my disciples because you love one another. And then, of course, the last one that I found as I'm reading 13 through 18 is Jesus speaking about abide in me. It is in this section that he teaches the parable of the, of the vine. Uh, you know, the gardener, the, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're going to have any fruit, you need to be abiding in the, in the vine. And he teaches that whole aspect of abiding in him, remaining in him, seeking to be connected always to Jesus Christ if we're going to, to be fruitful Christians in the world. These are things that Jesus commanded this one evening in his last will and testament. And we're not to take them lightly. These are the commands of our Lord, our Savior, and our God. Our incarnate God. And then another thing he did, is, which I want you to know, is he spent a whole lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit in this one evening. He said he was leaving, but he continually said, I'm leaving the Helper. I'm going to ask the Father to send the Helper. The counselor, the comforter, the attorney. I'm going to send you somebody. I'm not leaving you orphans. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to take, send one that is going to take my place, and he's going to take you the rest of the way. And he spends a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit, more than he does in the rest of the chapter of the book of John. In these five chapters, his last will and testament. Now, tonight, or today, I want to give you a rather quick teaching on the passage that was read this morning by, by Deacon Diane. Verses 21 through 29. I want to divide it in two sections. I want to divide it in two sections, okay? The first section I want to title, The Signs of Our Love for Jesus. The signs of our love for Jesus and its results. Okay, that's the first part. The second part that I want to teach you is the sign of God's love for us. The sign of God's love for us in the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to recognize that the Holy Spirit coming is a sign of God's love for you. The Holy Spirit is not plan A or plan B or plan C. God so loved you that not only did he give his son, he gave his spirit to live in you and dwell in you. That's a sign of his love for you. The coming of the Holy Spirit is to show us that we have the guarantee that our Father wants to be with us, in us, and is going to be uh, always with us no matter what we face. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a sign of God's love for us. But let's take a look at the first one first rather quickly. Our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus. The passage reads, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Recognize this, please, everybody. The sign, the test and proof and sign of our love for Jesus is not words or fussy feelings. The proof, the test, and the sign that we love Jesus is in our obedience. Words are easily spoken and not always kept. He says that if you have my commandments, that means you have to appropriate them for yourself. They can't just be on your Bible. You have to appropriate the commandments of Jesus and have them written in your heart. They who have his commandments and keeps them, obedience, that's the sign that you really love Jesus. Don't tell me you love Jesus and you're behaving like an unchristian. Don't tell me you love Jesus and you're disobedient to God's holy word. Because Jesus is very clear that those that don't love him don't keep his word. But those that love him keep his commandments. The sign, test, and proof that you and I have fallen in love with Jesus is our commitment to obey God's holy word. As easy or as hard as it can be. And we can fail a hundred million times, but we dust off, we get up, and we keep going in every intention of obeying God's holy word. Obedience is the greatest sign that we love Jesus. What he teaches we do without excuse. What he commands we obey without hesitation, without objection, without trying to change God's word to fit our convenience. What Jesus commands we do. What Jesus commands we obey. And then Jesus says, that is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's. So if you reject Jesus' word, you're rejecting the Father's word. The sign, test, and proof of our love for Jesus is obedience. Obedience to his teaching, obedience to his commandment. Wherever he leads, we go. And unfortunately, whatever the cost, we must be willing to pay it. Because it's not about us. It's about exalting Jesus by our obedience. How will the world know him if they look at us and we're not following as closely as we can to our Lord and Master. Obedience is the sign that you truly are in love with your God. Obedience. And of course, the result of this, uh, of this love, the result of this love, as we read before, and we even read it here, is that the Father will love him. 
The Father will love us. Now, it's not that the Father will love us because we are doing this thing. It's not a thing of, of actions or, or works. I mean, because we know we are saved, because we're in love with the Son, we express it by loving, by obedience. Obedience is the result of loving Jesus. And the result of that is that the Father will love us because if we love the Son, how can He not love us? The Father will love us and Jesus will love us. And it says, and He will manifest Himself to us. And Judas, probably Judas Thaddeus, Thaddeus um, not Iscariot, he comes and says, Jesus, I don't understand. What do you mean you'll manifest yourself to us? You mean... The world cannot see you. You're going to be invisible to them, but visible to us? How is that going to work? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. I will manifest myself to you. And I'm going to manifest myself to you in so many ways that you will know that you're never alone. No matter what happens in your life, you are never alone. I will come to be with you at every moment of your life. And you will know that I'm near. And you will know me. And your life will be transformed because I live. You will live also. I will manifest and you will understand and you will know that I am in you and you are in me. That we are bound together. I will manifest myself to you in ways that the world will not be able to understand because they don't obey me. They don't know me. They don't understand me. But you will know and I will make myself visible palpable, feelable by you. You will know that I've not abandoned you. You will know you are my child. I will manifest myself to you. And the more obedient you are, the more I'm going to be in your prayers. The more I'm going to be connected to you. The more I'm going to cover you under my wings. I was reading this morning Psalm 91 in my meditation this morning. Beautiful psalm about being covered by the feathers like, like a mother hen and living under the shadow of the Almighty. And thousands can fall to my left and 10,000 to my right, but nothing will hurt me because I'm in the covering of the Lord. I will manifest myself to you. That's a promise and a result of obedience. And then... Um, I want to say to you as well that the test and proof and sign of God's love for us, the test and proof and sign of God's love for us is not words or empty promises. It's the fact that we have the guarantee already with us in the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Notice that. The Holy Spirit is a sign of God's love for you and for me. I will ask the Father who will send the Spirit in my name, I will ask the Father and He will send the third person of the divine being to come and dwell in us. That's love. 
That's the love of the Father poured upon the church. The Spirit of God, the Helper, the Counselor, He will come and be with us. And the consequences or the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit is that we're not alone. Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is the helper. He's the one that's taking his place and leading us and helping us and transforming us and purifying us and sanctifying us and all of these things that need to be part of the Christian's life. And the result of it is that we, he will teach us he will teach us everything we need to learn. Even 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Holy Spirit is still teaching us, still teaching us his word, and still teaching us every commandment and every teaching. And not only that, he's reminding us. He's re making us remember because we forget. We are forgetful people. And the Spirit is seeing us constantly bringing us back to what Jesus taught to the word, to the meaning, to what God wants from us. The Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us, and he's also convicting us of any time that we sin. He convicts us and calls us back and draws us back and draws us back so that we can live in that unity with the Lord. And not only that, notice this at the end. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from my Father or from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also will be my witnesses, because you have been with me from the beginning. But another of the results of the Holy Spirit that he speaks about is peace. Peace in a way that the world cannot give it, because the world cannot give what it doesn't have. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. A peace that you cannot have by any other means than God indwelling you. It's not a peace that, that governments can put together by agreements. It's not a peace that you can generate by being this way or that way. It is a peace that is the product of the Holy Spirit living in you. It is a peace that surpasses even understanding. It is a peace that calms you. It is a peace that assures you. It is a peace that brings you the, the certainty that you are God's child. A peace, a peace in the midst of the chaos of life at times and in the chaos of the world. The sign and test and proof that Jesus and God love us is that he gave his spirit. Now, we're coming to Pentecost in just a few days. This is the sixth Sunday of Easter. We have next week is the seventh Sunday, and then we're going to enter into Pentecost. Now, I don't think Pentecost should be one day a year. I think Pentecost should be every time the church gets together. I think every time the church gets together, we should say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, take over. Take over my life. Correct my mistakes. Correct me, encourage me, charge me, teach me, help me, remind me so that I can be everything you want me to be. Now, today, in the form of application, 
I just want to say a couple of things to you. One is, I want to call all of you, all of you to obedience. I know that sometimes, you know, the devil didn't play with Judas just one day. It was just a constant messing with his mind and with his will and with his intentions to the point where Judas kind of felt at one time, maybe if I do it this way, it's going to happen my way. I, I don't know what was playing with him. I don't think he was just, I don't think he hated Jesus. I, I don't even think it was totally about money. I, I really don't know. But the devil was messing with his life for a long time, and greed was in his heart, and, and willfulness was in his heart. And I want to say to you, be obedient, and do not trust even the devil's influence in your life. Don't let him play with your mind. Don't let him play with your heart. Let the Word of God keep you pure. Let the Word of God keep you in the truth and be obedient to the Word of God and nothing else, not even to your own will or your own way of thinking. Go to the Word. Go to the Word. Go to the Word. The truth is nowhere else. Jesus is the truth. I want to call you today to obedience. Read the Word. Keep the commandments and obey the commandments. Live in it. Struggle with it. Fight with it. Fall down, get up again. Together, we can help each other be who Jesus wants us to be. So the first thing I want to call you to do is to, uh, to be obedient uh, in your reading of the Word and keeping the Word. And second thing that I want you to do is I want you to begin to prepare every day for Pentecost. I want you to begin because when Pentecost comes, I'm going to bring you a teaching on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how to open your heart and your life for the filling of the Holy Spirit and, and refilling because we all need to be refilled all the time. But I, I want you to call on the Spirit of God. Call the Father and ask Him, give me your Spirit. I open my heart to you. Fill me, make me usable for your kingdom. Make me usable, Lord, every day. Make me usable, because without you, this life is not worth living. And being a Christian is not worth being a Christian. It's not by our power, but by the Lord's power living in us. So my two things is I'm calling you to obedience, and two, I'm calling you to be open to the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to God's holy word. Read it again, chapter 13 all the way to 18, and see the many things Jesus says there about in his last will and testament.